know, you better know what the purpose of the workout is and the way that the workout is designed should in fact fit that purpose. And it should be better than, well, that's how I did it. That Triathlon Show 166. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Jason Coop, who is the Director of Coaching at Carmichael Training Systems. He is really a wealth of knowledge and experience in endurance sports coaching, having coached a lot of age group triathletes, runners, cyclists, etc., but also being one of the most reputable ultra running coach, having coached many of the best ultra runners in the sport today. So what we'll talk about today, it's a general training talk, so we go into a lot of a variety of different topics about how to train better as an endurance athlete but some specific things include how much or actually how little fitness uh, should you lose or allow yourself to lose in the off season why you must know the purpose of every single workout and block of training that uh, that you plan whether you're a coach or a self-coached athlete and uh, we dive deeper into run training structure for triathletes, since uh, Jason is a very knowledgeable runner, and that's uh, his, his background as an athlete. So how can triathletes structure their run training to become better at the running leg? And we go into some common mistakes that age group triathletes make, and uh, some current fads in triathlon and endurance sports. But before we do that, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Retool, that is a bike fitting system that uh, uses uh, the proprietary Retool Vantage 3D motion, motion capture technology so that it accurately can measure every degree of movement at every millimeter of distance during your bike fitting session. And this provides both you and your bike fitter with data to support the choices that are made during the bike fit for you to get the best possible end result in your bike fit and uh, your experience on the bike after that. And I think, personally, it's it's very cool when you can see in real time on a big screen these small changes in uh, in distances and, and angles. And when you see those pop up, and then you, especially when you start to feel how making even a millimeter change can suddenly make you feel so much more comfortable and powerful on the bike, I think that is uh, something that is pretty cool and insightful. You can learn more about the Retool bike fit process on retool.com forward slash TTS, as in that triathlon show. And Retool is spelled R-E-T-U-L. Find out more about the process and find your authorized Retool experience center near you. Thank you also to Precision Hydration. They make electrolyte products that help you get hydrated and stay hydrated so that you don't have to suffer from cramps and uh, impaired performance as the workout goes on. Now that we are in full-on winter training in the Northern Hemisphere, you are most likely stuck indoors on the turbo trainer or you might even do a lot of work on the treadmill. And as we talked about in some episodes in the past, since you do not have a lot of airflow, this of course depends on if you're using a very powerful fan, then that can improve the situation quite a bit or a lot. But in many situations, you might have a fan that is not that powerful, especially on those uh, those treadmills in gyms. And uh, for many 
many age group athletes in general at home, you might not have room for that industrial fan, or it might not look that pretty in your living room if that's where you do your your bike training. So uh, the point is that uh, you are likely sweating a whole lot when you're training indoors because you don't have airflow. And you are losing a lot of sodium and other electrolytes through that sweat. And to have a productive workout, you need to make sure that loss of electrolytes isn't going to limit you uh, in the latter stages of the workout. So check out the Precision Hydration Electrolytes. You can get your first box for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, on precisionhydration.com. And Precision Hydration is now also available in New Zealand and Australia. All right, so let's get right into the interview with Jason Coop. I'm here with Jason Coop, Director of Coaching at Carmichael Training Systems. Jason, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. You you are uh, a coach of uh, many many different strengths. You you coach a lot of elite ultra runners. That's how I first learned about you actually. But uh, then I found out when I was looking more closely at your profile on the on the Carmichael Training Systems website that you do also coach triathletes and cyclists. So uh, how have you come into endurance sports uh, from the start? What's uh, what's your background? Yeah, so my background is originally in running. Uh, I ran as a I ran in junior high, high school, and then at the collegiate level, I was a very mediocre runner uh, at best at a, a Division One school here in the United States. And uh, I started coaching track and field athletes, youth, tra- youth track and field athletes uh, in my early 20s, and then transitioned to coaching all different types of endurance athletes, mountain bikers, cyclists, triathletes, Ironman athletes, and then uh, kind of ultra runners in the I'd say in the mid or, or, or late 2000s. So for the cyclists and triathletes, uh, did you also start doing that yourself? Or did you coach without actually being a cyclist or triathlete at that point? Uh, a, li- a little bit. Um, you know, I, I kind of dabbled in the, in, in, the, in the sport. I, I actually did the Leadville Trail 100 mountain bike race way before I did the Leadville Trail 100 run, which is a kind of a little known fact. But not to... Not to a significant extent, just mainly for my own personal enjoyment. So what are some tips that you could give to, to coaches that, uh, that might be in the same situation? Or what, what did you find that uh, helped you coach people in, in sports that uh, were not necessarily your bread and butter that you had been doing every day of your life, like you had uh, running for a long time at least? Yeah, so I was really fortunate that I had a uh, I had a, a just an incredible array of uh, very high quality mentors when I first started coaching, and um, you know I thought when I was kind of getting into coaching as a profession that I kind of knew it all. You know, I had a I had a degree in biochemistry and genetics from a from a major university. I was a you know, I was an incredible student of, of all different types of endurance sports and read all the training books and philosophies and things like that. I had a lot of national governing body certifications um, and went to all the clinics and seminars and kind of you name it. Um, but what I learned, you know, really, really quickly, just in the environment that we have here at CTS and just being located uh, here in Colorado Springs, uh, proximate to the Olympic Training Center here, is that there's just really no substitute to to for having high quality mentors that have worked with hundreds of you know the best athletes, the highest caliber athletes for for decades, kind of helping to guide you 
in, or in this case, me in my, in my kind of coaching practice. So if, there, if there's really one thing I could offer anybody, it's just go out and develop a set of mentors that you can really lean on. That's really great advice. Uh, so let's dig into some training questions that we have on the agenda for today. And some of these come, come from, we want to give, give credit where credit's due to the Strength Running podcast. And uh, I heard an interview that you did recently there and discussed a couple of topics that uh, I thought we might go into here as well. The first one of them is about how much fitness uh, should you lose or not lose when uh, when fitness is cyclical and uh, you go through different periods of the season, but you have uh, your your approach to this. And can you tell us about that? Sure. So first off, all athletes need need downtime, and however you want to classify that as a transition phase or an off season or a regeneration phase. There's all this different kind of vocabulary that, that coaches use to the coaches and athletes use to describe that. I think it's necessary for all athletes to, to, to go through a period where they're off of their peak fitness. But I, I like to keep the athletes that I work with within about 10% of their, their peak fitness, uh, regardless of how you're kind of monitoring that, whether you're looking at training or you've got some sort of litmus test that you're going to use or, or whatever. And I, I find that 10% number, it's a little bit anecdotal and it's just kind of based off of uh, just what I've seen athletes kind of react best to throughout the course of many years, uh, kind of building training cycles. And the biggest thing with it is, is it just prevents an athlete from really digging too far out of a kind of a fitness hole whenever the next season is, uh, uh, kind of up now that, that 10% fitness, uh, decline can really happen over a kind of a span of, um, span of weeks or even months. I mean, it could, it could happen over three weeks, over four weeks, over six weeks, over eight weeks, or over 12 weeks. The time frame really is kind of inconsequential, but the absolute amount that, that, that I really allow my athletes to, to their, their peak fitness to deteriorate really it kind of teeters right around 10%. Mm, yeah. And at, at first, when I heard that number, it, it sounded like the first uh, reaction is that it, it sounds like a lot. And I, and I think that was sort of the point of that interview. But then when, when you actually, no, sorry, that it does not sound like a lot, it sounds like, like you're kind of going against the stream here with that advice. But then, then when you really start thinking about it, let's say you're, typical easy running pace is uh, five minutes per kilometer which would be eight minutes per mile uh, then that becomes when you're not at peak fitness that becomes five minutes 30 or eight 48 i guess in in mile pace yeah. so it is uh, still that there is a large range there and uh, which definitely allows for uh, for a, a wide range from when you're not at peak fitness to being at peak fitness yeah, and the other thing I always emphasize with that is it doesn't take much to hold on to that ten percent. I mean, it, it 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 even in the most kind of highly trained athletes where they're coming off of the peak of the peak, they don't need to do much to kind of stay within that you know ninety percent as good as they were at their very best. So. Uh, a lot of people have that same reaction that you just had where, you know, where they, where they, where, where they, where they think it's a lot, but then once they do the math on it, they're like, oh yeah, that's, um, that's totally reasonable to do. Yeah. So what's your advice then for how to hold on to that? Is that through just consistent less volume training or do you like to add some, uh, more less volume still, but high intensity, or do you have any special approach to that? And what about 
a complete period of like no training whatsoever how long do you recommend if at all that athletes take such a period yeah i don't like athletes taking like zero like a whole bunch of zero days in a row um you know maybe they go for a week or 10 days or something like that where they're totally off and, and and that's fine but i don't like to stretch it out into too much longer than that because it really doesn't take that much i mean really if you just get out for you know, five kilometers or 30 minute bike ride or a 40 minute bike ride or something, you know, something, you know, very, very, very small. Uh, it actually makes a big, uh, kind of big impact during that phase. And I just like to bring everything down. I like to bring the volume down. I like to bring the intensity down. I like to bring the frequency down, kind of all, all of the above and really look at kind of a million, a minimum value proposition of, of, of workload that you can put in front of the athlete that, um, uh, to where they're they're just not deteriorating too much and and kind of alongside that I, I, I also want them to do activities that are gonna regenerate their enthusiasm um, because a lot of times when you go through the grind of a season or maybe a few seasons in a row it just it just gets to a lot of athletes in particular a lot of high caliber athletes where they've just got their nose to the grindstone you know weeks and kind of months out of the year and sometimes you know this 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 transition phase can serve as a, a kind of a regeneration of their kind of enthusiasm for training and for the races that they that they've got coming up what might be some examples of those uh, th- those activities I mean, it's really simple. 30 minutes of easy running, 20 minutes of easy running, 60 minutes of easy cycling. I mean, really, it's honestly not. So, so, that, so that's, that. I, I talked about the, the rejuvenating, the, the, the ones that will uh, reinvigorate the, the enthusiasm, but it, that's still, you, you still um, consider those running or cycling activities as those, but just short and easy ones. <laughs> Well, you're, you're, yeah, you're not you're not of... talking about, for example, backcountry skiing or whatever you might be doing there in Colorado Springs. No, well, 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 there's not a lot of backcountry skiing here in Colorado Springs. There is, you know, just over the, over the front range. But if those activities are what is necessary to regenerate that enthusiasm, great. I mean, I typically prefer them to be aerobic activities versus, you know, power activities like going and playing ultimate Frisbee or basketball or, you know, something like that. But the, the point is, is to do things that, that the athlete feels that is going to, kind of regenerate their enthusiasm for the year and so and and most of the times just by bringing down the workload and sometimes that workload is reduced by 75 percent you know you have an athlete that's training 15 or 20 hours a week and then all of a sudden they go down to five hours a week and sometimes that extra physical bandwidth that they have been freed up from going from 15 or 20 hours a week down to five hours a week of training. Sometimes that alone, you know, is enough to kind of re, re kind of reignite their, the, the fire that's underneath them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the other topic that uh, you talked about on that strength running podcast was, uh, about planning workouts or using workouts that, uh, maximize the amount of work that you do at, uh, I guess at a given intensity, um, I, I'm not sure that I'm actually getting this quite right. So I'll let you just elaborate on, on what uh, what it was that you were talking about and, and explaining it for us. Sure, and, and I think the the question kind of came about. Um, it really revolved around how do you determine the specific workout architecture, and uh, I'll kind of broaden that back up and 
tie into a little bit of a theme that I talked about earlier, and that's just having really good mentors is one, one of the reasons or one of the ways that these uh, early mentors that I had had a big influence on me is that they would, they would consistently, and I would actually use the word relentlessly, ask me the question of why. Why was I doing the things that I was doing? Why was a recovery run 45 minutes? And why was it not 30 minutes or not 75 minutes? Why was this workout five by three minutes on, three minutes off, and not six by three minutes on, three minutes off, or 15 by one minute on, one minute off? And by kind of focusing on that relentless question of why, it really forces you as a coach to kind of hone down on making sure that whatever you're prescribing to the athlete is being done so very, very intentionally. And um, to, to, to kind of correlate that to, to your question, it's really not uh, so much of a, it's really not so much of a question of maximizing the amount of work that's being done because anybody can just pile on pile on work. Sometimes that's the case, but it's really more maximizing the benefit or the intended benefit uh, for what you're trying to do. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you kind of two, two examples of that, of where you can kind of pick and choose a different workout architecture and you could have a completely different consequence. One of the ones that we were focusing on, on the strength runner uh, podcast was a progression run. And I'm, I'm generally not a fan of progression runs and I'm not a fan of them specifically because the amount of quality work or the quality work that's being done in a progression run is always less than if you design that same run with the quality work at the beginning. So if you ask an athlete to do a run and then a six mile progression run at the end of their, you know, 13 mile long run or something like that. And you compare that with putting that six, six miles of effort at the beginning of the run, those six miles are always going to be faster because they're in a pre-fatigue state. If you do the six miles at the beginning of the run, so you're automatically having a, just a higher quality of workout of workout. The other thing that could happen is you could actually do more work, right? So instead of doing six miles at X pace at the end of the run, you could probably do seven miles or maybe seven and a half miles at the same pace at the beginning of the run because you're not in that pre-fatigue state. Um, but once again, I learned to, to look at workouts through this lens because of this consistent kind of question of why that these mentors were we're, we're asking me. The second way is just to, is just in terms of how you design the specific workload. And you can take two, two workouts that have an identical amount of time at intensity and they have completely different results. And the example I always give is you can prescribe a workout and say, I want this athlete to go 15 times one minute hard, one minute easy. So they're accumulating 15, one minute you know, intervals at a very, very high intensity throughout the course, you know, throughout the course of the workout. Or you can say, I'm going to do five times, three minutes hard, three minutes easy. Same time and intensity in both of those examples, 15 minutes, but the five times, three minutes hard, three minutes easy is going to be the workout that really stresses and maximizes the cardiovascular system and, and kind of taps into, you know, more of the athlete's VO2 max versus the 15 times one minute on one minute off. Now you could have a 
completely different rationale for prescribing that 15 by one minute on one minute off or progression run. But you have to be certain that that rationale actually fits the way that you are in fact designing the the specific workout for the athlete. Yeah. Tons of great points here. Uh, I, I have been, uh, been prescribing progression runs for quite a few people that I coach, especially when I've been coaching runners or coaching triathletes, in a run specific block perhaps for a half marathon and i started thinking when you were talking about the why uh, behind it and uh, and when i asked myself why it's probably because i felt that i had a lot of uh, improvements as a runner when i was doing progression runs but i didn't have any better rationale than than that really so it's uh, it's a great uh, mindset to take to to really ask why you're doing things and uh, I, I guess that you're following uh, or i know actually that you're following paul larson and uh, martin boucher and their work with uh, uh, with interval training uh, and uh, that's uh, a great example of uh, how to how to use the same time as intensity in different ways and get very different results so uh, paul is actually going to he has been a guest in the past and he's uh, coming on again to talk about their work but uh, that's that's a, a a really good example as well that yes you can you can do similar things but get different very different results well, and I'll, I'll just to pick on you for a little bit. Like we have this type of conversation in our in, in our coaching group all the time. Like, why did you do this? Why did you do that? It's not uncommon for a coach, to, especially our new coaches, to go, "Well, that's just because what I did, and I improved a lot." That's a horrible reason to yeah. prescribe a workout based on your personal experience. If that's the only thing you got, that's the only thing you got. But you bet. I always, I always strongly encourage our coaches to have a better reason than that. You better know what the purpose of the workout is and the way that the workout is designed should in fact fit that purpose. And it should be better than, well, that's how I did it. <laughs> what, what different, uh, variables and constraints would you would be the most important ones to consider when whether you're a coach or a self-coach athlete when you plan your your training where where do you start when when you when you go about planning your your training well if you take a look at from a season perspective i'll take like the big lens approach first and then we'll kind of narrow down to the to the to the smaller like week-long lens But if you look at an entire season, typically what we're trying to do is, and this is, this is more particular in an ultra running setting than than a triathlon setting, but we're typically trying to do is we're trying to tap into the physiology that is least specific to the events that the athlete is preparing for furthest away from the event. And then we're tapping into the physiology that's most specific to what they're uh, training for closest to the event. And so in a very little way, in a very literal way, you're going from least specific to most specific. Um, most of the times in an ultra marathon setting and the, the, the really caveats to this or the exceptions to this would be an, an elite ultra marathoners preparing for like a 50 K hundred K or a 50 mile type of race where they're just so good that, that, that this, that this, uh, isn't quite the case, but most of the times in an ultra marathon setting, that just means that your high intensity stuff is early and your low intensity, higher volume stuff is late. And then when you're going down to the level of, you know, the week or the phase or however you're kind of designing that, that, 
that individual is training, you really have to look at, okay, do these goals actually match that architecture that you have set up from the onset in terms of what you're actually trying to do? So in a very um, kind of in a very concrete sense, we're taking this like zoom out and then zoom in and then zoom back out approach whenever we're working with athletes, we're setting up the long range architecture, then we're zooming down into the what's going on to the in the next one or two weeks. And then we're zooming back out and making sure that those one or two weeks do, in fact, kind of fit the narrative of what we want the athlete to do long term. And some of those examples with uh, the I guess there are more special cases or, or not they're the details and, and not the the big picture stuff but you mentioned there you should have an explanation for why you do a 45 minute recovery run and not a 30 minute recovery run or why you do uh five times three minutes instead of six times three minutes i think were the examples how how would you what what input would you use to to decide on those uh those questions for example it's a myriad of them. I mean, it's how experienced the athlete is, how well they're handling the load, how much do they need? Um, you know, I could, I could just go on and on and on how long they've been training for, how long the phase is, how fatigued they are within the specific phase. I mean, we've, we've had these, um, we've had these coaching roundtables here, these mentorship sessions where literally we'll go over a, just, just a week's worth of prescription for an athlete and it will take 90 minutes to chew through and it might be a simple week it might be a week with you know four endurance runs and two hard runs you know and one day off which which on the you know on the surface seems very 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 simple but because we're kind of forcing our coaches to like really dig into that detail sometimes it just takes a lot to to actually process. And it's all in a, it's all in a effort to just make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. That's the point that we're always trying to create with those exercises. Yeah. And I think any, any coach or athlete, one, one of the great places to start is to see what has worked in the past uh, for, for that athlete. And, uh, and, th- and then you can, you sort of have a baseline of what the athlete can handle, what have caused them to improve and, perhaps what periods have not caused them to improve. So those are some additional things that, that I have found useful uh, to consider as well, when both from the macro perspective and the micro perspective when it comes to a weekly and uh, and the workout structure uh, planning point of view. Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously the athlete's history has a big, uh, is, a, is one of those big input factors, right? Is to use your, uh, to use your vocabulary. Um, I, I always view coaching as you're building a bridge, right? You're building a bridge between where the athlete is at and where they want to go. And it's your job to determine, you know, where to put the spans and how much concrete to use and where to reinforce this and, you know, how the, you know, how long that bridge is going to take to build and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, the, the, I, so I completely agree with you that, that some of the inputs are just the, you know, basic athlete history. Yeah. So let's focus in a bit on the run training aspect of triathlon. Uh, and, uh, because it's, um, simply, it's been such a long time since uh, we've done that on the podcast. So, and I thought that you would be a great person to, to discuss that with. So, uh, First, if we just start simple, what would be your general advice for structuring run training for triathlon? Well, not, not to sound like too much of a volume monger, but most people can just stand to run more. 
You know, I mean, if you were to, I'm actually doing this exercise right now for, uh, for an article that's going to come out in a couple of weeks, but if you were to prioritize all the, you know, all, all the training that you want your athlete to do or prioritize the things, I guess is a better way to put it, prioritize the things that you want an athlete to do. Just the total volume of training has got to be the thing that, that, that rises to the surface in terms of the, in, in terms of the thing that's the, that's the most important. Um, and then once you, once you maximize that and once pe- and most, most triathletes or runners have a ceiling to which they start to break down after that because running is such a kind of an injury uh, riddled sport. So especially most experienced triathletes, most experienced runners, they know, hey, I can get away with 10 hours of running a week or 70 miles of running a week. However, they're just de- kind of defining their volume and that sets their, 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 their upper limit. And then what I have athletes focus on is actually the, the quality and amount of rest that they get and the nutrition that they're taking in because those two things kind of serve as the, the, the building blocks to reinforce all the, all the, all the work that they've done. And then the fourth thing, the fourth thing that I would have them focus on is then after they've maximized their volume and really optimized their rest and their nutrition. After that, we start to look at the specific training structure within the micro cycle or the year or, or the, or the, uh, year as a whole, but it really comes in that order. Really. I think that most, you know, kind of most runners would be really well served to try to figure out how to maximize their total aerobic volume first, and then try to figure out how to maximize their rest and recovery and nutrition second, and then focus on, you know, whatever kind of mini periodization schemes and things like that, that they encounter, you know, as a, uh, as, as kind of a fourth consideration. So a few follow-up questions on that, because uh, as triathletes train for three different sports, uh, the athletes might not be limited by uh, breaking down, but actually by their time available to train, since they have to balance the three different sports. So uh, how how would you deal with that? Let's say we have somebody who's training 15 hours per week, which is already a lot for an age grouper, uh, then uh, they they need to do some swimming, they need to do some biking, and also running. W- would you... Are there ways would you use some sort of block periodization to perhaps get in blocks of uh, larger running volume? Would you perhaps uh, prescribe more running in uh, as a percentage of the whole than than most uh, than what is traditional in triathlon? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's difficult to say because every athlete is going to have a little bit of a unique need. But I think generally, generally speaking, if I'm trying to improve a, an age group triathlete that that is more of a generalist, right? That doesn't have anything really specific. I would honestly start with a run because that's the most important component of triathlon. You get more bang for your buck. So you improve your, your fitness 2% on the run. It's going to pay off more than if you improve your fitness 2% on the bike, because just because of the air resistance, right? That you have in the encounter cycling Uh, and running is the last of the three disciplines that you're doing. So when you're talking about bang for your buck in terms of, uh, what the improvements are going to be and how they manifest into time out on the course, it's always worth it to go with a run. Now, if you have an athlete that has a real, real specific need, they need more work on the swim, right? They can improve 15 minutes on the swim, just a little bit of work. That's a different kind of kettle of fish. But if you're talking about an athlete, that's more of a generalist, I would always have them 
and that has been in the sport for a long period of time, I would always have them <clears throat> kind of steer more of their more of their training for improvement to things on the run, simply because that's where you know that's where most of the time to be gained uh, actually happens. Yeah, yeah, and and also you do get a bit more bang for your buck in terms of that uh, forty-five minutes bike ride won't won't do that much but a 45 minute run will do will do a bit more the the volume requirements are just a bit lower overall in running so so that's another consideration yep uh, so so the rest and the nutrition aspects can you uh, dig into those a little bit yeah you know i mean a lot of times we we try to focus on you know okay i'm gonna do this interval set versus that interval set or i'm gonna do you know, a 14 mile long run versus a 12 mile long run, like these really trivial, you know, ways to, as you mentioned, kind of at the very beginning of the conversation that we're having, like how to maximize the workload. And before, before I look at that, that kind of level of trivial increases in mileage or volume or moving around the interval schemes or things like that. We just make sure that athletes resting and is, is taking in adequate nutrition kind of first and foremost, because those trivial increases are not going to manifest themselves into anything if you're not getting adequate rest. So if they're getting adequate rest, they're sleeping eight hours a night, it's high quality sleep. They're getting adequate, you know, nutrients, macronutrients, and micronutrients. Then after that point, then you can look at the really you know, fine tooth comb, look at their at their training habits. Okay, yeah, now we're going to run 14 miles off the bike instead of 12 miles off the bike. Now we're going to do seven by three minutes versus six by three minutes. You can start to look at those. Um, you can start to look at those things kind of around the edges, but only when only when the the rest and the nutrition is you know more optimized. And uh, and and how how do you optimize that? For well, sleep is uh, pretty evident. You mentioned eight hours. That's a, a good a good standard, although it varies from individual to individual. And and quality. Well, there are ways to measure that, but you can also just simply feel it but nutrition there are a lot of different uh ideas uh, thrown around so, so what's your take on that what, well, what is uh nutrition is it just a bit back to basics uh, like uh, eating healthy whole foods or do you have any specifics uh that you that you prescribe well first off athletes are horrible at actually knowing how much they need to eat just from a macronutrient standpoint they're ter- they're, they're terrible at it most athletes are they have no idea whether they need 2000 calories or 4000 calories during the day. So we just start out with some very basic nutrition or some very basic education on okay if for let's just take an example for an ultra runner. Okay, you have a 3 hour run, right? In that 3 hour run you're going to burn about 700 calories per hour. So that's an extra 2100 calories that you're going to need on top of your you know, I'm just going to use the stereotype of 2000 calories a day, right? So right there you're going to need 4000 calories on that day. Your recovery, your recovery days are completely different situation. You have your 2000 calories a day. You might add in for 600 calories for that, for that recovery run. And so your total caloric needs for that day are 2,500, 2,600 calories. So there's this big discrepancy between the hard, long days and the easy days. And we start out with just that. This are, these are the total amount of calories that you're going to need 
on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. And then we break it down to what that actually means. Okay, for breakfast, I'm going to eat this. For lunch, I'm going to eat that. For dinner, I'm going to eat that. But the recommendations are quite honestly boiled down to really, really, really simple stuff. Cover your caloric needs. Make sure that you're not eating junk. It's a success by lack of failure proposition. Make sure you're not eating junk. And that's going to cover almost all of the issues that that typically pop up with nutrition and endurance athletes in terms of, you know, if they're deficient in certain micronutrients or, you know, they, ha- they, they have a, you know, weird blood profile that pops up during a routine test or something like that. Just make sure that they've got the calories and those calories are not crap is kind of the base point that we're starting from there. Yeah, I, I like it. Uh, I like it. That's, it's uh, simple enough that, that people can actually follow it. Uh, so uh, that's great, and and then uh, what? Let, we we've been talking about this a little bit uh, with the ultra running. Are there things that you've learned from uh, from your very successful ultra running coaching career? You've coached some of the best ultra runners ultra runners in the world, and is it something that you've learned from that that could be applied in triathlon? Well, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I I tend to think that endurance athletes are more similar than <laughs> than, than than different. Um, so I, I don't know if there, I don't know if the lessons learned would be specific to, uh, ultra running that could be then applied to, to triathlon. But the, one of the things that I kind of keep coming back to year after year is athletes have to have a very, uh, just a very acute and tuned in sense of purpose. They have to know why they're doing what they're doing. Because the training is hard and particularly with the elite athletes that I work with, like I, they demand a lot of themselves and I will then demand a lot out of them during the whole training process. And by a lot, it's not like, you know, we're smashing them with workouts or anything like that. It's a lot of everything. Like sometimes the intensity is, Hey, you better make sure that you rest you know, with reckless abandon, like you have to make sure that you really focused on your rest. I don't want you taking a three hour road trip to, you know, go see Imagine Dragons in concert on your rest day. That's not a rest day. Like you have to, you, you have to be very, very focused on your, uh, on your rest just as much so as your training. And I find that when athletes have a very uh, clear and articulate sense of purpose, that they'll then do the things that they need to do in order to be successful. And I, I don't think that's any different than any other, you know, than any, than any other high level athlete and any other endurance sports is that the, the training is just so hard um, that you need that, 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 that higher level of purpose in order to make it all successful. Even just as a human being, right? Like, <laughs> right. We, we, we don't even need to talk about athletes here. Uh, but that's that's great advice, and I, I definitely agree. Uh, going going back to the run specific uh, discussion, are are there some common mistakes in run training other than uh, not running enough uh, that triathletes that you see triathletes make? Oh man, well we give uh, we uh, we give triathletes a lot of grief here in our in our office as you as you get very well aware of they're they're a unique breed i would say one of the one of the things that is both a a positive and a negative that triathletes always seem to bring to the table is that, that the first adopters um you even go back to the 80s right i mean they were the first adopters for aero bars in cycling 
And sometimes that first adopter, that first mover position is great, right? I mean, they find things out that uh, it sometimes takes years for the other endurance sports to kind of catch up on. And then sometimes it's just nonsense. I mean, sometimes they're just chasing things around the next gadget, the next recovery widget, the next, you know, nutrition fad or whatever that ends up uh, either not being beneficial uh, and in some cases detrimental to their training and their performance. So it's one of those things that could be like both an asset and a, and, and a benefit at time, or an asset and a detriment at times. So, so are, are there some examples of uh, those uh, fads or gadgets uh, in uh, in present moment that that you would say that we we are oh, riding man, the high wave? You're going to get me. Yeah, you're going to get me to throw people underneath the bus. I, I think the lar- the low carb, high fat uh, thing in in triathlon just needs to go away. Um, I think it needs to go away in all endurance sports, and we need to take a more pragmatic, periodized nutrition approach to. Uh, to those things. Um, there's definitely some equipment things like you remember the old Y bike, right? Without the seat tubes, um, that triathletes adopted in, in the early days. And, uh, those have kind of since gone away. They look dumb and they, you know, didn't work all that well either. Um, but, um, I, I don't know. I mean, those are things that we just like to poke yeah. fun at versus things that I think are, are very material on the whole, you know, on the whole scheme yeah. of things. What's your take on running power meters? Oh man. So I've, I, just as an interesting anecdote, so, so stride, which is one of the running power meter companies is based up in Boulder, which is just about 90 minutes North of me. I actually might go see them tomorrow as, as, as irony, <laughs> as irony would have it. But, um, I, I, I've been not, not involved, but I would say I've been in touch, um, with them ever, ever since their Kickstarter campaign. Um, and I actually went up there when they got their first, uh, production units and kind of took the first one out of the, out of the, uh, out of the boxing assembly line that they had, uh, there in their, uh, uh, in their kind of incubator office and unboxed the first one in front of them, which was kind of a weird, just a, a, a weird, uh, a weird thing to be a part of. But anyway, um, I, I think that the better functionality or the better utility with the stride pod uh, uh, specifically is just the fact that it can measure the path of the foot. I think that, that using the, using something that's on your foot to estimate the metabolic power that's required of the athlete has too many, has kind of too many faults in it to be, uh, of utility from a training prescription or analysis perspective. I think that looking at it through a biomechanical lens, uh, could have better utility in it and there's, and they're, and they're starting to do that. So then the word power meter really isn't that relevant, right? Which I think is their ultimate flaw right. that they're calling it, a at stride specifically that they're calling it a power meter. I do think that if somebody can solve, um, measuring force at the level of a foot, um, or at the level of the foot, just like they do, uh, and a biomechanics lab would have some utility from a, from a, uh, training and analysis perspective, or even a kind of a real time gauge of, of, of prescription. Um, but we're a little ways off from, from having those happen. Although there's some, there's some companies out there that are trying to, that are trying to crack that code. I'm sure Nike has already done it. We just don't know it yet. 
Yeah, yeah, you never know. Yeah, you know, it's it's a complicated problem. I mean, there's there's definitely people trying to solve it, but I I kind of divide it into this whole running power meter thing into two categories. Is one the ones that are using motion in Stride's case, they're using motion at the level of the foot, and some of them use motion at the level of the center of mass, which is actually where Stride started. Not a lot of people remember that they actually started as. Uh, Having uh, having a device that captured motion within a heart rate monitor, and then they use that to 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 calculate the power. But I think that's one category, and I think that if you're measuring that movement at the level of the foot, it's more the utility in that is more of a biomechanics type of utility versus a workout intensity type of utility, which which power would connotate a workout uh, prescription or workout intensity type of utility. And then there's the companies that are focusing on trying to measure force at the level of the foot. And that's a completely, that's kind of a completely different deal. And I think that might actually have some, some prescriptive utility in a, an endurance runner setting. Right. So it related to, to this discussion, then how do you prefer to prescribe intensity uh, in running specifically for uh, for athletes to use rpe heart rate pace or does it depend on the context well for ultra runners i use rpe i, I honestly can't remember the last time i prescribed something via heart rate it was probably in 2004 it was 14 years ago maybe um and the the, the reason for that is is in, in trail and ultra running specifically the 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 conditions that surround the run so the heat the temperature the environment the altitude they all affect heart rate uh to an extent that prescribing something particularly with a very narrow heart rate range the it just it just gets lost in the noise so there's more noise than there is heart rate heart rate range that you actually have and so the um uh, so, so the prescription be, kind of becomes null and void. So I switched over to rate of perceived exertion several, over a decade ago, and I haven't kind of looked back since. And interestingly enough, the one of the kind of turning points for me as a coach was actually not in running, was actually in cycling. Uh, when I first started coaching cyclists, and this was, you know, if everybody can rewind their brains a little bit, this is 2000, 2001 when I first started working with cyclists. So onboard commercially available power meters were just starting to become more and more available to the public. The price points were coming down. Uh, they were more readily available. They weren't as heavy. And so cyclists uh, were using them more and more often uh, out in the field. And previous to that, it was just the people in, in the Tour de France, basically, and not even all of those guys. I mean, maybe 20% of the people, riders in the Tour de France were actually using power meters during training and, and none of them were using power meters during racing because they were so heavy. Um, but right around 2000 is when uh, they started becoming more and more prevalent and uh, all athletes kind of had better access to them. And so as coaches, we gradually sh started to shift our prescription from heart rate to power. And it kind of made us look like idiots because previously when we're working with an athlete, we'd say, okay, go out and ride at this interval between 150 and 155 beats per minute. And we don't want you to do four sets of that interval or whatever. And the athlete would go and do that. And then we switched over to a power meter and we said, okay, I want you to do, you know, 250 Watts, the 
first you know interval would be in that same heart rate range the second interval would be a little bit higher than that heart rate range the third interval would be way higher than that heart rate range the fourth interval would be you know even higher than that and so the athletes would come back to us and say hey were we prescribing these workouts incorrectly uh before i was using a power meter and you kind of had to look at it and go yeah we probably should have been doing it a little bit different so so anyway that's just a long-winded story to kind of backtrack on why I've switched over to rate of perceived exertion and not heart rate, just because there's so many fallacies with, with, with using heart rate as an intensity tool, uh, when prescribing, uh, things for athletes. So, so to make it clear, you would, uh, for a triathlete, for, uh, for, for a cyclist these days that does not have a power meter, you would, uh, you would prefer to use RPE, not heart rate. Well, for, for, for a triathlete that doesn't, for a triathlete, what I would prefer to do is pace on the run and then RPE second yep. and then heart rate third. So if I'm using those intensity tools in order, that's the hierarchy that I would use. Yeah. For cyclists, I would use power and then RPE and then heart rate. Okay. Got it. Uh, yep. Uh, I think we're in, in agreement on, on, on that actually. Uh, so uh, although I do use power as well alongside pace for running uh, because I've, I've been using it and some of my athletes do use it and but I do think that uh, you're right the, the metabolic uh, measurement is probably not accurate but at the same time I think it it does an equally good job as the GPS signal of uh, getting the get, getting sort of the signal through in how, how hard they're going so it's not necessarily that much better than pace but it's uh, it's equally valid and there are some other advantages like if you are in a bad gps area then you can still get the the power so so there are some advantages i, I yeah, see yeah. but 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 I, I agree that it's not the best thing since sliced bread <laughs> i agree i'll agree with you there <laughs> so uh, uh a couple of more questions then to wrap up uh what would be the most useful general training advice that you would give to the listeners or advice in or, general. You talked about purpose, but uh, already, so that might be one. But do you have something else that you want to leave the listeners with, the uh, especially the self-coached athletes? Yeah, I mean, for the for the self-coached athletes, it's don't overcomplicate it. Like you're going to get ninety percent of it right just with your own intuition, and then the last ten percent, it's going to take a coach to do. Um, and there are a lot of athletes that that makes a difference, right? I mean, that's the difference between you know, winning and not even getting into Olympic final, right? 10%. That's a, that's a big, big difference at that level. But for a lot of athletes, it's kind of inconsequential. So don't overcomplicate it and to, and to really enjoy the process. You know, I mean, a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, this is a little bit of a uh, tag along to sentiment I mentioned earlier, we just get caught up kind of in the grind of training, you know, it's just, it's really monotonous and, you know, you're doing it for months and months out of the year, you really have to enjoy it. You know, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to benefit from it. So it kind of, it, uh, kind of goes along with making sure that, you know, you have a solid purpose, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And, uh, for the coaches listening, there are quite a few of them and I've already taken a lot of notes from, from this call. I found it really useful to, as a, as a coaching call for a coach, but uh, what will you leave the coaches with as uh, your final piece of advice? <laughs> Well, I, I gave this on the Strength Runner podcast, so I'll give it on this one as well. But it, it goes along with the mentorship, you know, it, it, in the way that one of the ways that we bring that to light now, and this is still so crazy that it boils down to this, is just follow the right people on Twitter and 
do it in a kind of a in a relentless fashion like don't just take the 280 character tweet as gospel like use it as something that you're going to as you're as something as you're going to learn from um when i when i first started coaching and i first actually when i first started managing and mentoring coaches we would bring it we have interns you know that, that would come in for you know four months at a time or whatever and a big part of their job was just to pull research for our coaches, meaning we would go to them, we'd say, okay, I want you to pull and organize all of this research in this area, and then we're going to work on summarizing it for some sort of professional development or continuing ed that we're doing. And that has largely, not completely, but that's largely been replaced by just following the right people on Twitter and using that as the conduit to develop all of these professional uh, development types of uh, uh, activities that we do here. So anyway, find good mentors and follow the right people on Twitter. Well, <laughs> so well like you, you, kindly, <laughs> you, you kindly sent me your list of uh, people to follow on Twitter because I emailed you and asked after listening to that podcast. So to save you to answer a lot of the same email, would it be okay if I post that on the show notes page for this? Yeah, that's not a problem at all. I probably missed some people, so I'm sorry if... Uh, I probably missed some colleagues on there. That, uh, but anyway, I, pol- I apologize if I, yeah. <laughs> I should have it. It'll, that'll be a good start, though. It'll it it good was start. a good start. Very good start. Uh, yeah, so that's about it. Let's move into the rapid-fire questions. Uh, take 15 seconds or less to answer these, starting with, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Twitter. <laughs> what's a personal <laughs> habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, being organized. I thought you were going to say being on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could keep coming back to Twitter. No, being organized. Who's somebody in endurance sports that you look up to? Oh, man. Uh, I just got his book yesterday, David Goggins. David Goggins? Who is that? Oh, he's uh, he's a former Navy SEAL um, ultra runner here based in the U.S. and just has this just incredible life story where he grew up largely uneducated, impoverished, abused. He lived in a, he's, he's an African-American and grew up in a really kind of racist part of the country um, and just ended up being, having this, you know, incredible life story where, you know, he go, just go read his book. Can't hurt me. Um, but he, he's somebody that, you know, being in ultra running scene here in, in the U S and a bad water veteran myself that I've just always really looked up to. All right. Finally, tell us where we can uh, find out more about you and uh, on website, Twitter, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So Twitter and Instagram are both Jason Coop. That's spelled with a K, J-A-S-O-N-K-O-O-P. You can find me on both uh, both those social uh, media handles. And then the website is www.trainright.com. You can see all of our uh, coaches and or all of our coaching camps that we offer on that website. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jason. This has been really great. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to us this evening. Yep, absolutely. It was fun. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I think it was very, very insightful and it was uh, an honor to have uh, Jason on. He is uh, such a wealth of knowledge and a super experienced uh, and reputable coach. 
a few of my key takeaways from the discussion were, of course, to always have a very clear purpose as we discussed. And uh, one way that you can do this when you plan your training, if you're self-coached or if you are a coach, is to sort of peel the onion uh, by diving a couple of layers deeper than just the first answer to your question of why you want to do this workout. So let's say you plan to do some VO2 max intervals. And uh, then you might ask, well, why am I doing this? And uh, the answer is to increase my VO2 max. Uh, So that's fair enough, but don't stop there. Dive deeper. So you can ask questions like, is my VO2 max limiting me? Can I already sustain a large percentage of VO2 max for a long time and I need to raise my ceiling to improve my performance? Am I far from or close to my genetic potential of VO2 max improvements? How does VO2 max play into the specific demands of my goal, race or event? Is the risk-reward ratio of doing this type of work- workout better than doing something else, like threshold intervals or muscular endurance intervals? So the better questions and the more good questions you ask, the better you can plan your training. And this is not necessarily because you have all the answers. Uh, I think that most likely you don't. I know at least that I don't have all the answers when I ask these questions. And I think that uh, probably Jason doesn't either. But asking these sorts of questions, it makes you think and Just because of that, it makes you make better decisions when you plan your training. And obviously, sometimes uh, we fail to do so. I fail to do so as in the example on the progression runs that we discussed. And I'm very open with that, that uh, things are not always perfect. You make mistakes and you try to learn from them and uh, improve with time. And uh, that's, by the way, not to say that progression runs aren't great workouts. But uh, the point here was that you should have a very clear purpose for why you're doing them better than I've done them in the past and it seemed to work for me. The second takeaway from this episode is in terms of run training, just run more. And uh, that is something that uh, I do agree with, definitely. And there are a lot of examples of athletes that you just increase their run volume and most of it can be just added endurance running. It doesn't have to be all that hard. Uh, But when you have that volume and you keep that volume up over time, then that slowly but surely, it does improve your running. And I'm personally in that kind of phase right now, because a year ago, that's roughly when I got injured again and I started having really serious knee problems. So I didn't run from January through uh, April or May even, end of April perhaps. So I lost a lot of fitness. And since then, well, I improved my running a lot since then. I improved quite quickly. But only now in uh, December, January, have we been starting to really ramp up my run volume. And I feel that even though I'm not in race fitness yet, I'm not peaking by any means, but my base fitness is just so much deeper. And I'm running actually better than I probably ever have, at least in the shorter distances, just because of the fact that we have now had time to, we have a safe distance to my running injury. Things are going great and we can afford with with little risk to ramp up my running volume. And I'm running more kilometers, much more kilometers than I, than I did in the summer because we were still too close to the running injury that it wasn't worth the risk. But now that I have added those layers of volume and increased volume, it does make a massive difference, more so than any workouts that I'm doing, like specific quality intervals, that sort of thing. So increase your run volume, that would be the second takeaway. As usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. If you have questions or comments, leave them on that show notes page and I'll get right back to you and answer them there. In the next episode on the podcast, I interview Susan Sotir, who's a PhD 
and the assistant professor at Springfield College. So she's very knowledgeable in the science of endurance sports. And she's also a coach since many, many years at Breakthrough Performance Coaching. So our topic really will be balancing the art and the science of endurance training and how important it is to get that balance right and not fall too far on any one side of it. If you're new to the podcast, you have roughly 165 previous long-form episodes like this to go back to and listen to the archives. I want to point that out, uh, that uh, there's a lot of catching up to do, plus about 50 to 60 other episodes that don't have a number like 166 in this example, but uh, the beginner tips and the Q&A episodes that I do on, on Thursdays. So there's a lot of catching up to do. Please do that if you if you are newer to the podcast and you haven't listened to all the archives, because... There are some really, really great episodes back in the archives that I highly recommend you go back and listen to. So just want to to remind you of that as well. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help keep it going is to tell your friends about it and rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can find the show, we can grow the podcast and uh, that helps keep it going and help me to be able to attract great guests like Jason Coop on to the show. So do that and I am very, very grateful for it. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get your first box of electrolyte products for free with the promo code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps. And big thanks to Retool that you can find on retool.com forward slash TTS. Learn more about the Retool bike fit process and find your nearest Retool bike fitter. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.